Hi, this is Rachel in recovery. We've got Julie with her. She's an officer and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on here, Rachel. Um, I'm Julie. Uh, I am a police officer in the state of Missouri. Um, I've worked in a few different positions in Missouri. I was previously um, working on the street for a very large agency in Missouri, and now I currently work with juveniles. Okay. Um, We're going to go into questions. Um, What things have changed to help sexual assault? Uh, in the state of Missouri, I've been very grateful for, uh, you know, the fact that police officers can forward charges on behalf of sexual assault victims. A lot of these situations, the victims are very nervous about taking any kind of law enforcement action, even if that could even save their lives. So in the state of Missouri, you don't need, you know, the victim to say, yes, you know, prosecute this, you know, suspect. Police can just do that, and that's common practice for them to do that, regardless of, you know, what's going on with the victim. Uh, what kind of scenarios of domestic abuse situations have you encountered during your time as a police officer? Well, I've seen very, very many situations. Um, the most common scenario I've seen is a very intimate relationship between the victim and the suspect. And I've seen, you know, the victim be male or female. I've seen same-sex relationships um, where, where there's victim victimization. Um, all sorts of family scenarios. The most common that I've seen is that the uh, female victim and a male offender, um, and usually there is kids in the home that we'll see, but these situations are extremely dangerous. They are statistically the most dangerous um, call for law enforcement to go on. This is where a lot of times um, you will see shots fired and there will be kind of physical violence here. Um, in Missouri, what I've seen is that, you know, when you have the manpower to do so, it's common practice for police always to go two man to these calls. And when I say two man, it means at least two officers. So, you know, one person can be engaging the offender and one can be talking to the victim and kind of keep them separate because these situations can become violent very, very quickly if they are not already violent. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience with survivors of sexual abuse. Um, what I've seen when I've come across uh, survivors of sexual abuse um, when it was an adult, you know, um, someone that would recognize me as I was going about my duties as a police officer on the street, I would see a lot of gratitude. Um, these victims would run up to me and literally give me a huge hug with tears in their eyes. They're just so grateful that someone took action and was an advocate on their behalf. Um, so I've seen just complete thankfulness. Um, with juveniles, I think, you know, I, I work with juveniles right now, and I've seen them um, become victims of any kind of sexual abuse or, you know, domestic violence. I think they're they're glad to see an adult that's on their side that's there to, you know, help them. So I think that's that's huge, and that's been wonderful for me to see, you know, the after effect. Um, what has been your opinion on the courts dealing with sexual abuse and domestic violence? In all honesty, this has been the biggest disappointment for me in my law enforcement career. Um, I've been working, you know, in law enforcement for over seven years now. And, you know, what I've seen is that there is not enough long-term um, response by the courts, by our judicial system to protect survivors of all sorts of offenses, but especially domestic violence. Um, I've never had the personal experience, thankfully, but I have seen, you know, after 
police officers engage in an initial domestic violence call. They get that attacker out of the situation. The victim is put somewhere safe or they are safe away from that person that was victimizing them. That somehow that attacker is able to get back to them later on, whether that's, you know, the next day or weeks down the road and they're, you know, assaulted again or even worse, I've heard, you know, victims that are killed by their previous offenders. So there needs to be more long-term. Um... Okay. Uh, as a female officer, what have you experienced or seen abuse from other officers? Uh, well, thankfully, I've never been, you know, sexually or physically abused by other officers. Um, you know, I, I know that can happen for sure. Um, but I've never, you know, had that happen to me. I've never heard of it happening. But what I have seen quite a bit is that there's, you know... A culture in police work that is very male oriented. I think currently, right now in 2022, um, female officers make up about 12% of all law enforcement. So that is an extremely small number, you know, for you know our current day and age. Um, what you will see is that a lot of male officers will look down on female officers just because of our size is usually smaller than them. Um, you know that you will see a lot of biases and stereotypes believed about us and. Um, you know, different things like that, that is very difficult. It's, it's different to be a female officer for sure. Um, how toxic is the work environment that you have been in when it comes to abuse? As far as officers, you know, responding to abuse calls, I have not seen any kind of toxic behavior. I've never seen any kind of inappropriate, you know, joking or even support of any kind of attacker's behaviors or, you know, offender's behaviors. I have not seen that. I've, you know, had the good fortune to work with very good agencies and very good officers. Um, You know, I have seen abuse by law enforcement, um, you know, in a different situation, but not in any kind of domestic violence calls. Okay. Um. What do you do for self-care when dealing with these report, like when reporting these cases? I think that's an excellent question. I think a lot of um, civilians that maybe don't have a lot of connections to law enforcement don't think about. Uh, so I really appreciate that question because, you know, as a police officer, I really had to learn, you know, to pay attention to that. Um, you know, if I come from a very difficult call, you know, that day, especially if it's involving a juvenile, that seems to be um, even worse for me. I am a mom and seeing, you know, a child go through something where they're victimized is extremely difficult, especially if it's a sexual offense. Um, but if it's something that day, you know, when I get home from work, I need at least, you know, half an hour to myself to not, you know, interact with my family at all. And I think my husband, like, um, we're about to celebrate eight years together. I think he's learned just to kind of give me that space and just, um, you know, occupy our son while, you know, I kind of get time to myself to be alone, whether it's being outside and just kind of, you know, understanding, like, I've been through something pretty dark. I've seen something really evil and being able to be honest with yourself and have time to yourself, it helps you, you know, refocus on, you know, your own family and not bring that, you know, toxic or, you know, evil situation that you witnessed into your own family. Okay. Um, how has this impacted your mental health when working in these situations? Um, you know, yeah, I think I'm a very outgoing person and if I've seen something very difficult, I become withdrawn and that's one of the biggest indicators to me that, you know, I need to, 
give myself some self-care, whether that's, you know, for me, it's spending time with my animals or being out in nature, um, doing something that I love, doing artwork. I know this artwork is very helpful for getting any kind of negative thing out of yourself and being able to, you know, understand it even for your, yourself. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I've had to deal with, um, post-traumatic stress disorder with some other calls I've been on. It wasn't with domestic violence, but it was with being shot at and all. And then just believing my family could be, you know, threatened in that way. And I had to process that. So, um, it's been a lot of people coming alongside me. Um, people that know me really well, care about me and just being honest with me, like, Hey, you know, something's not right. And just a humility thing with me. I think a lot of officers don't like to talk about, you know, difficult thing they've seen. Part of that is because I think we want to protect those we love. So they aren't like, you know, secondhand trauma as well. Like, you know, we had to deal with this and now we're going to talk about it and then have them traumatized too. It's like a protection mindset. But also I think there's an element of pride in there if we're honest of thinking, you know, we don't have to, you know, work through this. We're so hard and so tough or whatever. But, you know, you really do. It will affect everyone in different ways. Okay. Um, to survivors out there, what advice would you want to give them as a police officer? As a police officer, the, you know, common thing I've seen is that a lot of these situations, the victims, you know, had this kind of gut instinct in them that something was wrong, that they, you know, were being victimized, but, you know, they kind of pushed those instincts away, you know, like, hey, you know, we can work through this or we can keep going. You know, what I've learned as a police officer is that when you have any kind of gut instinct, it's usually right. You know, whether you think like you're in danger or you think someone is going to endanger your family, your children, or you just think like you're being mistreated. Like I've never heard any kind of situation where that wasn't accurate, that wasn't on point. And I've learned to trust that myself in situations like if I feel, you know, the hair on the back of my neck kind of standing up, like I think, hey, I need to be more on guard. Like there's something here. Um, so I would say, you know, always trust your instincts. And, um, you know, after having survived a situation like that, you know, care about, you know, yourself, give yourself that self-care and, you know, move forward. Don't let what happened to you define your life. Um, as a police officer, um, would you say your work supports you on mental health and, um, taking the time you need to heal from certain situation cases and things. You know, I think that's a huge weakness in law enforcement. Currently, I would say no. Um, you know, obviously if you're injured on duty, you're given that time, like a physical injury, a broken arm or a broken leg or you're shot or something, you have that time to recover physically. But I think that's hugely unaddressed in law enforcement is, um, emotional wounds that we, you know, um, do take on from the dark calls that we see. And I think that there is not enough time in law enforcement to be able to recover from that. Um, as many officers as we've seen killed in the line of duty every year, the biggest uh, threat to law enforcement is actually suicide, is officers killing themselves. And I think mental health is hugely unaddressed in you know law enforcement. I think that does need to be taken much more seriously than it is. And I do believe officers do need time to be able to process you know the situations they face. Um, I guess, uh, what are patterns that you have noticed personally when working with sexual abuse and domestic violence with both victims and perpetrators? What I've seen is, yeah, it's usually an intimate relationship, usually a sexual relationship between 
the victim and you know the perpetrator in those situations it usually um, is a family environment I, a lot of times kids are involved and once i said they, all these things are not you know the rule but it is a generalization that i commonly see and you know the victims will often stay in these situations because they want to protect that family unit they want to see things go well and you know keep their family whole in their mind so they will remain in a dangerous situation just for that goal uh, a lot of times with these uh, perpetrators, you will see that there is some kind of substance abuse, some kind of addiction of some kind, whether that's um, alcoholism, uh, con- you know, illegal substances, pornography, and you will see quite a huge um, indicator by those perpetrators, like a love of power, whether that's emotional power, uh, financial power, um, physical power, sexual power over their victims, or all of the above. You know, there's a real love of power and Commonly with the victims, I will see, like, they think very low of themselves, of their own identity. They don't usually think highly of themselves. Um, well, I guess with childhood sexual abuse, that would not be technically an intimate relationship. Could we tell tell us a little bit more about those patterns? Sure. Um, you know, with the juveniles I work with right now, they're high school age. But, um, you know, most of them are juveniles under the law. And one of the biggest and disturbing trends I'm seeing is grooming um, over social media by adult offenders. And when I say adult offenders, like these aren't, you know, 18-year-olds grooming, you know, 14-year-olds. These are, you know, 50-some-odd-year-olds grooming 14-year-olds. And they're not just, you know talking you know smoothly to them they're requesting child pornography they're telling these juveniles to do horrendous acts over you know some kind of social media platform and victimizing these children in this way and you know this is horrendous no matter how old you are to be victimized in this way but for a child with a developing self-identity and mind this will have lifetime you know lifetime consequences for them and um you know it, it just absolutely sickens me um and, I mean, I know you guys get to do a lot of online, but do you do, like, you know, you know, where sexual abuse and a non-digital platform, like, you know, whether it's a father, uncle, or those sort of calls? Right. Um, in my current role, um, I don't usually, I'm not one of the first, you know, officers to engage in those situations that are inside the home, but oftentimes I do have to make some kind of hotline call and get children's division involved in there. Um, I have seen, you know, some good cases where juveniles are taken out of those dangerous situations, but unfortunately, you know, I think, like I said, like the long-term care and prevention is a huge weakness, you know, in keeping those perpetrators away from victims. Okay. Um, How has this impacted your faith? That's a great question. Um, you know, dealing with these very difficult calls, um, you know, I think that will break down any police officer long term. You will not make it in the law enforcement profession if you don't have faith. Um, you know, that's really helped me understand, you know, all the evil that I see, how to continue to, you know, see something, the absolute worst thing one person could do to another person and go to sleep and wake up the next day, you know, and face it again. It's been my faith in Jesus being able to, you know, power me through this and understand, um, you know, it's not by power, it's not by my strength, but only by, you know, the Holy Spirit that I can continue to know what to do in these situations and how to, you know, work through them and face them again. 
Okay. Is there anything else you would like to add? I don't think so. Yeah, you've asked great questions. I really appreciate the ones you asked about, you know, how should a police officer, you know, give themselves self-care in order to, you know, take care of their own mental health. I think that's really overlooked. Okay. Um, all right, guys. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Julie, for being on our show. And uh, Absolutely. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. See you guys next Thursday at 10 a.m. And always find us on your favorite social media platform or your favorite podcast platform. And as always, you can go to rachelandrecovery.com. And thanks for listening. I'll hear from you next week. Thanks. Thanks.